This is audible. This is audible. This is audible. This is audible. <laughs> this, hold on. This is audible. That was pretty good. That was good. That pretty was good. good. Pretty darn good. Hold, hold on. Let me try again. I, got, I think I got it. This is audible. Wait, no, nah, it's too nasally. <laughs> this is audible. No, I think you got the this is good. I think the audible you're dropping off on. Like it's this, more like a. This is audible. Is it deeper? This is audible. No. That was good. No. I, I, I don't know. I you like got the, the this yeah. real pat. This is audible. This, I can't do the audible. What is it? Yeah, you're good at the this. You're struggling it, with There the must audible. be a patent on how to pronounce that that I just don't have access to. This is audible. Ah, fuck. Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. My name is Nick Argyris and this week I am Hello. looking for once again Hi, Nick. the best food book ever written. Nick, Nick, can you hear me? Hi, Nick. Hey, Nick. Hey. Nick, it's Ian and Joe. Hey. To help me, of course, are two morons <laughs> and high school English teachers, Ian and Joe. Hi, Nick. <laughs> this is Joe. I'm entrusted with youth, the youth of America, or at least like of my very specific <laughs> oh, region Lord that I live in. Uh, my name is Joe Holsu, Nick. I am a high school English teacher. Nick, wait, you didn't say what kind of book you're looking for this week. I did. You were just talking over me because you guys have terrible <laughs> podcast etiquette. The best kind of talking, talking over. Nick. If you're looking for a food book this week, I'd recommend the first non-memoir food book I've read for this series. Um, an editable, editable, I still can't say it. Oh, it's you're never going to pronounce that. No, you're screwed. Yeah. Nick, edible, I would like editable. to submit that edible. Joe should be disqualified because he doesn't know what he read this week. Because he cannot read. <laughs> that has been that has been noted, Ian. I don't. Thank you for calling it out, but it has been already noted. <laughs> Edible history of humanity, written by a guy named Tom Standage. Hello, it's me, Doctor Ian DeYoung. I'm still a high school English teacher, though I do love history as well, and this is a good thing because this week I brought a book about the history of food. It's called Consider the Fork. And today I want to tell you to consider the fork. Do it. Do it now. Do it. Consider it. Do it. Consider it. Do it now. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. <laughs>, <laughs>, <laughs> It's very British. Is your author British? I think she is British because she talks a lot about England. Really? <laughs> <laughs> it does. It sounds very British. It sounds like a very British way of saying that. Just consider it. <laughs> well, it feels like a polite command. And and, right. and I if there's a more British genre, I don't know what it is, than polite commands. Yeah, like the classic British polite commands like... Mm-hmm. pay your taxes or we'll send mm-hmm. our armies or mm-hmm. um, make sure you Consider give us your tribute because we're colonizing you or we'll kill you. Long live the queen. Long live the queen. I was like reading telling something about uh, some, 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 something about the, uh, the queen's offspring and how, yes. you know, they're very controversial mm-hmm. and it was like British people. <laughs> uh, it was, <laughs> I believe the quote was, Americans glorify success while the British simply tolerate it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Oh, I like that. That's pretty good. good. <laughs> I like that. Well, I mean, it's like it ties into what we were talking about in a previous week 
where in mm. England you can be knighted, um, or if you're a woman, you can be made a dame, which seems like not damed. the you same. But you can be knighted if you are successful enough. But that's not a real benefit because, as we discussed, if you are knighted, then you are responsible for defending the realm. So it's like, hey, congratulations right. on making millions in, I don't know, health insurance. Now go mm-hmm. take your pen knife. You must defend the realm. So speaking, that's funny that you bring that up. So uh, my entire family has COVID. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Wait, what What family? The, the fa- Nick, I'm concerned because you and I are family. What family? My family. Well, I'm married to your sister. So My sister has COVID? What, yeah. what about the baby? TBD, we just bought a test. Oh, oh boy. You're going to have to shove that thing up poor Cece's nose. Yeah. I think that's the screaming that I just heard, actually. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I just wanted to let you guys know. Where did you get, where did you get COVID? I want to know. I have no idea. I, I, we genu- genuinely have no idea because... You don't leave um, the house. Like, I know yeah, we you. We don't leave you the don't house. Leave. On the plus side, on the plus side, if the worst were to happen, at least the podcast would gain some new friends of the show. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I will eternally haunt oh, you guys. Well, welcome, Litheads, to You Don't Know Lit, a weekly, or as we call Strongly, call strongly podcast, podcast. where every week we pick a theme or a genre or uh, some sort of word. Or loosely connected assortment of ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every week we do some free association. Um, <laughs> we pick a word, and then Ian and I just go nuts. Mm-hmm. We go nuts, and we find a book. We abstract, you, dance it out. Do you guys want to hear a poem? A- oh. Speaking of word association. Seems like a good time for it, sure. <laughs> is here this it is. Off, the, off the cuff, off the dome? Yeah, here it is. It's, this poem is called Pastries. Okay. I go nuts Okay. This or is donuts. Bullshit. This is bullshit. No, stop listening. No, really good. No, really good. I'll allow no, that's it. That's the whole poem. Mm-hmm. Good poem. Where every week we pick donuts <laughs> and Ian and Joe bring a book to uh, present and... <laughs> We pick a winner just to piss him off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But of course, we do have some rules to keep us on track. Rule number one is only unavoidable spoilers, gentlemen, preferably none. Rule number two is omit needless words, Joseph Holshue. Mm-hmm. And rule Joseph, number three. Joseph Harvey Holshue. And rule number three, of course, is winning is in everything. It's the only thing. <clears throat> Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi. Do you think you got COVID from Aaron Rodgers? Have you been, have oh. you been with Aaron Rodgers? Could be. <sighs> It was tough to watch that game. Just to be clear, I am fully vaccinated. (laughs) Now, Nick, when you say you're fully vaccinated, would you say you're fully vaccinated or you're fully immunized? (laughs) What's the difference? He has some crystals. (laughs) Nick has crystals. um, He has prayed to the mother Gaia and uh, he's feeling good about his chances. I think who the person we're alienating this week is Aaron Rodgers and Shailene Woodley. You guys know that we, of course, have shadow rules um, and well... They're they're as they're as constant as the never changing. So many of them. Yeah, they're they're always the same foreshadow rules, and they are consider the fork, consider the knife, consider the spoon, and consider the salad spinner. It's an incredibly useful tool, but just very impractical to have it in your house. I mean, it takes up so much space. Really big, and like it's a unitasker. And if I learned one thing from Alton mm. Brown, it's that you're not supposed yeah. to like unitaskers. Yeah. Although I've got a lime squeezer that's oh, really effective. Really a pass effective. for sure. Yeah. Um, 
Joseph, uh, in my book, yes. I know it's not my turn. We haven't even started yet. But no, in my book, I got to show this to you guys. My book is pretty hilarious. There's one part where she's talking about the mortar and pestle and the history of the mortar and pestle. And she recounts a recipe from the Roman times where the guy says, here's what you do. You start by boiling some lettuce with onions. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh. And I just lost it. Uh, Why is that funny? The concept of boiled lettuce Why? is hilarious to me. How do you guys prepare your lettuce? Not how, you don't how, boil it with onions. Yeah, how else are you going to make collard greens? Ooh, ooh, <laughs> fucking schooled, Ian. Schooled. I just schooled you. You, you boil almost every. Now other you're leafy in my green. school. Or or mm-hmm. or steam it. But you just you just always eat lettuce raw. Um, Joseph, do you want to take thirty seconds and and just to take thirty seconds and tell me about your book? I would be so happy to, Nick. Nick, we are what we eat. Or at least society is. This dense little book, an editable history, edible, god damn it, history it's of fine. humanity, yep. uh, 280 pages long, isn't about how delicious food is or any importance of salt or fat or acid or heat or the friends we make along the way. Ooh. Instead, it focuses on one thing where the history of food meets the history of humanity, which turns out to be just a ton of places. Um, Like spread of colonialism, amassing wealth, earliest cities, fall of empires, like famines that kill millions. Um, In short, Nick, food's a very big deal. A very big deal. Mm -hmm. Ian. Hey. Your time has started. This is not a cookbook. This is not a memoir. This is a time travel book, an archaeology book, a philosophy book. It's a book about how the way we cook affects the way we think and how the way we cook literally shapes our bodies. You should read B. Wilson's Consider the Fork because you'll never look at nutmeg graters or ice cream machines or forks the same way again. That's pretty good. The pace that Ian uh, recited that at is the same pace that the audiobook of my book was read at, which was just as intolerable <laughs> as that. <laughs> I appreciate Ian's pauses. It's not uh, as um uh it's Ian is more of a a single fire pistol uh where mm. Joseph tends to be more of a Tommy gun. Yeah. Some sort of burst mechanism. Um, lovely. These both sound very deep. Uh, thank you for bringing such, uh, rich, uh, deep. I think I said that again. Um, books for our final episode of the trilogy. I feel like you guys aren't, you're, you're over that salt, uh, fat, uh, you know, petty story bullshit. Now you're the genre, the real stuff. The genre where we just list things and say they're important. I swear. (laughs) Uh, lists. That could be a good week. So we either have, we have the micro and the macro, it sounds like, huh? Let's start small. Mm. <laughs> Ian. Yes. <laughs> Hi. Let's look within before we look without, huh? We must solve our, our, inner, our innards first. Yeah, let's solve those <laughs> innards. That's, that's what we're here for. Um, yeah. This boil book. And boil them with, with lettuce. <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, Ian, what's your book about? When I, when I got this book, when I, when I first found this book, I was like, oh, okay. An encyclopedia. I thought this would be like, here is the history of a knife. Here is the history of a salad tongs. Here is the history of a cheese grater. Here's the history of boiled lettuce. <laughs> but instead of that, it's um, really series of long, longish essays organized around the history of 
key elements of the cooking experience. So there are things like she gives you a whole a whole um, essay on the history of mortal, mortars and pestles and kind of like more largely how we have ground things in our history. Um, she's got a whole passage, a whole chapter on knives, a whole essay on pots and pans, but she's also got like bigger concepts. So there's a, pa- there's a, there's a, there's an essay that's about heat sources, the ways that we've graduated from, you know, sun drying things to like sous vide basically. Um, how uh, cooling, chilling, the growth of refrigeration. Uh, her last chapter is maybe her most abstract, and it's on the history of the kitchen as a space in the home, as a conceptual thing, the place where we go to do our cooking. So it's not an encyclopedia of the first knife was found in Miami, Florida, in a pile of dirt. Famously. It's 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 mm-hmm. bigger than that. It's insightful, it's funny, it's reflective. And I learned, you learn things about like human beings and the way we've developed and the way that our culture has changed us and our bodies have changed. Hmm. So there's obviously a lot here. So how do you want to talk about this book? Uh, Do you want to pick, pick a couple fun little histories to give us a little history lessons? I'll give you all schools in session, classes in session. I'll give you. Mm. Oh, sit down. Nick, sit down. Don't spit that spitball. Put it away. Paper airplanes. Not allowed. (laughs) I mean, it's Ian's classroom, but I'm just making some assumptions. <laughs> but I have some rules. Okay, uh, I'll give you guys. I'll give you guys three brief history lessons. Do you know what a spit is? Do either of you know what a spit is? Besides the thing you do, that's disgusting, Ian. Um, it's pretty nasty. A spit. Yeah. In terms of like, cook, yeah, food? cooking. It's like what you roast a pig on. It's like the thing that you drive through a pig oh, to rotate over a fire. Duh. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a big old piece of metal, and you ram it through a, a, a beast of some sort. <laughs> Any beast will do. After, nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, wait, a beast will do. Pig, chicken, lamb, possum, um, ox, raccoon. So, so she yeah. goes in depth on spits. Um, she says when you kind of think about roasting, you think about oh, you roast it over the fire. But she says no, 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 you don't do that. You roast off to the side, and a spit like works roasting over a spit, an open fire spit roast works when you're, if it spins. So the spit has to spin. You can't just like set the, the, the pig and let it sit. Um, right. you have to spin it. So first she says, um, little children spun the spit, <laughs> which is horrifying. Um, they, <laughs> they had like, you would hire, you would hire like a little, like a four year old or a five year old. Cause they could fit, in the special area beside the fireplace <laughs> where, they, <laughs> where they could spin the spit. And then at some point they were like, let's not have little children doing this anymore. So they upgraded. Why? They made it better. Did they get specific? Right. By like um, la- breeding, labor laws? Or? By breeding dogs to do the spit. <laughs> With, did they have thumbs? No, no, they didn't. The dogs had to like run on a, on a wheel or on a turnstile. Um, oh. And they bred these dogs Good to be boy. specifically like small enough, perfect for this purpose. And th- this kind of dog, they're called turn spit dogs. Um, and it's now extinct. There, there aren't, there aren't oh. these anymore. Um, there are stories that of dogs getting smart and learning that when, like when they heard the noise of like butchery happening, that that was, it's going to be spit time. And so the dogs would run away and hide. Oh, because they didn't want to work. They didn't want to work. Dogs. The spit. 
I'm, I'm looking at an illustration of a turnspit dog here. It looks like uh like kind of a Jack Russell Terrier. Yeah, sort like of a corgi, maybe, maybe a little bigger. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, like kind of a short-legged, long-bodied thing. Yeah. Big, deep chest. But then they tried again. They said, this is also not good. So instead, they built these elaborate clockwork machines that had like weights and gears and you would like run the weight up to the top and then you would let it kind of go and it would very slowly let the weight down and it would spin the, the spit and no humans or dogs were harmed in the making of this. And when it got to the bottom, it would ring a little bell. Oh, literally a grandfather's clock. Like they built a grandfather's clock. That also spun a many pounds of meat over. Except very, very Well, I mean, I feel like instead of just having a pendulum, it spun a thing. I I don't think it's that crazy. In in terms of it made a noise, then yes. (laughs) And it worked like a clock. You raised the weights and they slowly fell. Do you guys know how grandfather's clock works? Anyway. uh, (laughs) I think we should go back to the dogs with fingers. (laughs) So, so... um, Wilson is really good about, you know, she gives you these interesting little historical details. Oh, okay. Turn spit dog. Cool. Uh, clockwork spit machine, whatever. But then she kind of uses these to make bigger points. And the bigger point from the, the roasting chapter is roast meat over a fire tastes way better than meat roasted in an oven because it's not doing the same thing. It's not reacting. It, it's, it's, um, uh, radiant heat as opposed to convection heat. And so roast meat in the oven is not as good as meat roasted over a fire. And she says, British food used to be legendary. Roasted British food was incredible because it was like mm. all fire burned, fire driven. But now because yeah. they roast their roasts in the oven, it's boring. So you know that like cliche about, oh, British food is bland. They don't have any cuisine. They used to, and then they stopped burning things over the fire, and now it's, as we say, boring. Well, I don't feel like that's. I a, think there's some yeah, other steps going. I was going to say, I feel like little. other places like have good food, and they also use ovens. So, well, but no, no, but she's saying specifically the thing that British food was known for was the fire, yeah, the fire, like the fire roasting, and when you take away they the lost fire, their mojo. All of a sudden, it's it's just the oven. Um, Here's another one. Speaking of fire. So she says, um, there are two great food cultures in the world. What do you think they are? Ooh, 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 ooh. Nick, you pick one. I'll pick one. Okay. French. French. Ah, that's what I was going to (laughs) guess. Okay. So I was going to say like Italian, but I feel like that's very Western centric. I'm going to say Chinese. You are correct. Boom. Wow. The two great food cultures, (laughs) she says, are French and Chinese. And- one of the best parts about this book is um, how she talks about, like, she she really educates educates the reader on not just, it's not just like, here's a good dish from Chinese food. It's why Chinese food is so different from Western food mm-hmm. and what it says about, like, wh- how it comes directly from geographical differences. So the one of the fundamental elements of Chinese Uh, especially early Chinese cooking was fuel scarcity. They didn't have huge, massive forests they could cut down and burn like the British did. The British were just like, yeah, I'll make a bonfire in the middle of my kitchen and roast a whole ox over it uh, for several hours. Um, The Chinese couldn't do that. So first, let me just take over this country (laughs) to get some more wood. Imperialism, baby. Um, So the, the Chinese didn't have that. So, they they had to cook things fast, which is where wok uh, cooking, like the whole the whole wok tradition comes from. You heat it up really hot, and then you throw the food in, and you fry it fast because you don't have trees for days. 
but also you have to cut stuff really, really small if you're going to cook it fast because you can't just like roast a whole beast. You can't have whole roast beast. (laughs) Really fast. (laughs) Really fast. Roasting a beast takes longer. So what you do is, first of all, you develop a fast cooking method, the wok, and then you develop a knife skills, a knife culture that is and that is focused on quickly, evenly cutting things really, really small. And so the other part of Chinese cooking, good Chinese cooking, is the fact that Chinese cooks use one knife. I like mm. that. Not this fancy paring knife nonsense. Yeah, no, yeah. just one big knife. Or maybe one small knife. Ian didn't specify. These wonderful right. kind of fluctuations where she's like, yeah, here we are in France and they have like a pan for everything. And here we are in China where they have one pan, most mostly. One pan, Here we are in, in English cooking where they have billions of knives for strawberries and oysters. And here we are in China where they have a big, heavy cleaver called a two. And that is it. You don't have like paring knives. You don't have bread knives. Everything gets cut with this two. And Chinese cooks are very, very good with it. Is it two or one, Ian? I'm sorry. <laughs> T-O-U. It's, ah. it's spelled T-O-U. It's called a two. And um, you spend more time if you're a Chinese cook or if you're cooking Chinese food. You spend more time chopping. You spend more time on prep. But that's less time in the pot. And this is all because of fuel scarcity and the need to cook fast. So Chinese cooking, which relies on this on this um, particular kind of knife, um, wielded very carefully. If you keep it sharp, you can do it. Do any number of things with it. You can you can shave, or you can like take a chicken apart in eighteen seconds, or you can julienne a, a, a onion, or you can chicken. Yeah, anything. Um, I have a question. Yeah. So okay, so that's pretty cool. So she kind of bounces around on the differences between the cultures and obviously how that well maybe the other way i was going to say how it has an impact on their food but how their food well i guess so it's kind of how their food is impacted by culture right they're tangled up yes yeah impacts culture culture impacts food they're tangled up in food um so how how is how is this told is it very factual is it what what what's it like to read yeah. So so she she has clearly researched like a ton. There is there is so much um so much background research that's that's gone into this that um Let me ask you, can I stop you? Yes. When you're reading this book is it like is your reaction like oh wow, she really knows a lot about this. <laughs> <laughs> like are you stopping like is she pulling out some deep cuts where you're like wow, she really did her research? Or is it more surface level? No, no, it's it's deep cuts, but it's deep cuts, but it's it's not presented in um, a way that is like, look at me, look at how smart I am. It's very, it's, it's okay. their their stories well told. So yes, she's done a ton of research, and yes, there are a lot of like pieces of information. Like you, she she tells you um, the origin story of um, the microplane food grader. Of course, mm. no book would be complete without it. No, why somebody, why, why the inventor kind of like needed to invent it and how the inventor invented it. Um, she talks about um, ice cream makers that work better than modern, like ice cream makers from 1870 that work better than modern ice cream makers, but are poisonous. And the people who still <laughs> use them because they're, they're supposedly for at cold temperatures, the toxicity of poisonous metals is minimal. She, she gives you these deep cuts is a good, a good phrase, but 
she does it in such a way that you're like, you, you look back and you're like, wow, there was so much there. It doesn't feel like too much on the surface. The best part of this book, I want to say one more, one more little history lesson. This is hands down my favorite part of the whole book. Um, this is where she talks about the overbite. You guys want to know what an overbite is? It's the opposite of what a bulldog has. Like a bulldog has yes. an underbite. Yes. Well said, Joe. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Do I get a gold star? Yes, you do. I will give you oh, a digital yeah. gold star. Eat it, Litheads Nick. mark it down. Joe is now the proud owner of one gold star, which can be rescinded upon bad behavior. <laughs> Please um, also note that Nick has zero gold stars, Litheads. Yeah. Or upon the failure to say edible. and i'm gonna need a few more gold stars before i go (laughs) (laughs) well you better say some gold star worthy things okay let me talk to you guys about the overbite this is as you say the opposite of the underbite um she says um this is a recent development in human development like human evolution we we did not used to have this overbite as recently as 300 years ago human beings had what's called an edge to edge bite which is, I want everyone listening right now, take your lower jaw and kind of like pull it forward. So your, your teeth are doing it. Your bottom doing teeth it. meet your front teeth. And they're kind of like, it's kind of like you'd, you'd look at a picture of a chimpanzee and then they're like grinning and you can see like, there's just like a, a wall of teeth all the way across. And she says that for most of human history, we had this edge to edge bite. And she cites this specialist, this historian, uh, anthropologist from um, the, the the 20th century, Charles Loring Brace. And Charles Loring Brace had this hot idea, this hot take that human beings started with this edge-to-edge bite and that within the last 300 years, we had moved away from it. Um, and he said it's because people used to put a hunk of food in their mouth, bite down on it, chomp down on it, and then have to separate what's in their mouth from... What's on the hunk still? You could do this by tearing it off with your teeth mm-hmm. or by taking a knife and kind of like cutting along beside your lips. I'm miming this, but it's an audio, audible mm-hmm. audio medium, so you can't see it. Cut along mm-hmm. and cut the stuff off. And she, he says, Brace says that the positioning of our incisor teeth, the sharp pointy ones at the, at the corners, if you have an edge to edge bite, that's re- they're really good for chomping into meat and holding it there while you tear it off. But <laughs> nowadays, they don't really do anything for us. Those incisors are just kind of like hanging out there doing nothing. Yeah, useless. useless rip, rip them right out. Brace makes this claim, and everyone says, you moron. That's not true. That can't be. We haven't <laughs> changed that much in 300 years. And he's like, no, no, seriously. So what he started doing was traveling <laughs> no, around on, and looking at skulls looking at the skulls of historic people and showing how, no, people from this era, they had the edge to edge. People from 100 years later, 200, 500, they had the edge to edge bite. And then he shows that um, over the course of time, he shows that um, around the time that we started using forks and cutting our food on our plates, the edge to edge bite went away because we didn't need to sink our teeth into a hunk of meat and tear it off. Yeah. We could cut it up with our knife and with our fork and put it in our mouth. And there was no 
And so the lower jaw starts to recede. This feels Crazy. like this. I, I, it feels not true. It does. <laughs> like, I know. I know. Like, like 300 years. Come on. How yeah, does it? Know? I know. It's true. But. She says he. Well, that's not that crazy. I mean, braces do it in a couple of years. <laughs> that's true. That Nick, hey, Nick, good point. Do you want Thank my you. gold star, Nick? Do you I want would this like gold your gold star? star. Please Nick, give it Nick, to me. Ian, are these transferable? <laughs> oh, absolutely. They they are definitely oh, fungible Nick, tokens. Congratulations. Um, so <laughs> we should, can we can can this podcast start an NFT <laughs> where we just sell gold stars. Nick, I would like the blockchain to represent that Ian gave me that gold star. I gave it to you. You are the owner of that gold star. Um, we, we do have a blockchain supporter. Gracious. Um, I have one more thing to say okay, about this. But not a bad thing. idea. Do you guys? Hey, okay. Hey, do you guys remember how we were talking about China? Mm-hmm. And how Chinese, China. Chinese knife work, that big heavy cleaver, the two cuts everything the really two. small. Uh-huh. What effect might this have on the sort of stuffing things in your mouth and tearing it off? Mm, well, well, if you have little small bites of things, you never have you to don't. tear anything exactly. off. Exactly. So, wait a second, wait a second. I think I know. Yeah. So, did the when you look at Chinese skulls, did they develop the overbite way before westerners did? You bet. Like hundreds of years? Yes, they did. Come on. Around the time that we are, we, we think that sort of like the small cutting, the two happened in China, we see from the archaeological record, the overbite starting to emerge in Chinese skeletons. And this is a cuisine which specifically is geared towards small pieces, not having to stuff a huge chunk in your mouth and rip it off. And um, so they got the overbite before we did. So I think that's pretty great. It's pretty cool. And it pretty much proves that she's not full of shit, Joe. <laughs> well, I don't know. It, my, the thought that comes to mind is are overbites and underbites genetic or do you like train yourself to do it? And does your face just stay that way? Extremity. <laughs> Extremity. Like when you know of, when you make a face at your sister at the dinner table and your parents. Your face like, does freeze that, that way. Face. Yeah. It's going to stay that way. I think that's what happens to us. Having a severe overbite or underbite is um, is genetic. There is um, there is a f- a line of English or not English uh, European monarchs named the Habsburgs who basically married uh, each other for centuries yeah, and got and, real ugly. Yeah, and their chin had this famous underbite where the the chin jutted out so far that supposedly one of the guys had to cover his mouth. Um, when it rains, so that rain wouldn't fall into his lower jaw. That sounds like <laughs> he a would lie, drop but... like a pelican, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like a pelican. Yeah, it's exactly like a pelican. Uh, that's why they called him Pelican Jones. Just killing him on these comparisons tonight. <laughs> <laughs> this book does a really nice job of showing you why the history matters, and I think the the overbite thing is a perfect example because she says, "Yeah, cooking development is important, but." especially we should pay attention to how it changes our bodies. The ways that our physical existence in the world is different because of changes in cooking. And really more broadly, this book makes you think about why we do what we do. I don't know about you guys, but we have a, my, 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 uh, my in-laws who I'll be spending Thanksgiving with, or who I, who I just got done spending Thanksgiving with, sorry. Um, there have a fairly traditional Thanksgiving. We do a lot of the same things. We have Turkey, we have stuffing, cranberry sauce, and Thanksgiving is a meal which can kind of get rote. It can kind of get routine. 
And not you know, a lot of acid. We just got done. Yeah, we need we need more acid, <laughs> as Samina Nosra would say. We just got done with Thanksgiving. Maybe you, Litheads, you're thinking about changing it up next year, or maybe you're not. She says a lot of what we do in the kitchen, a lot of what we think about the kitchen is second nature. And what she wants to do is take what's been demystified and kind of kind of remystify it a little bit, kind of give it some of that mystique again. So a knife yeah. is not ever just a knife. A spoon is not ever just a spoon. A salad spinner is not ever just a salad spinner. And a fork is most certainly not just a fork. Hey guys. Yeah? Do you feel like it's been this podcast, you've been going on for a while. Would you say that we're would you guys. say that we're kindred spirits by this point? No. I don't think so. Kindled spirit? Kindled spirit. Oh, is that like a book pun? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely a book yes. pun. Because there's a there's a book that talks a lot about kindred spirits, and I feel like maybe it's time for us to read, just evaluate where we are uh, as, mm-hmm. as co-hosts and talk right. about kindred mm-hmm. spirits. Yeah. Let's talk about where this relationship is going. Like, what are First, we, we Guys, must what learn we? what it is. Anybody who knows anything about literature knows that I'm referring to L.M. Montgomery's classic work mm-hmm. and of green gables gables sorry <laughs> i just had to put a little joke in there so i think we should it's her yeah. birthday it's it's montgomery's birthday um next week i think we should talk about her masterwork which a lot of people know i would like to come here and i would like to bring a little author knowledge right now um uh litheads the little preview of what's to come lm montgomery stands for lucy maud and if you want more facts (laughs) like that litheads ian i appreciate you're gonna read the book but joe i mean Mm -hmm. you're gonna change our lives with that absolutely knowledge (laughs) hey let me drop another one on you Canadian. Canadian. You always have to you push it too far. You, know, right. you just say you just you had it and you just you let you ruined it. All right. So uh great. This week I brought a book. I'm gonna say it great. one time. Good. I'm gonna say the title one time. I'm gonna say it correctly. Joe. Yes. Okay. You know what? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go ahead and give mm-hmm. you a gold star for bringing a book this week. But remember. That can go away just like this if you oh mispronounce the name. So you have one gold star. All right. <clears throat> Nick, this book. It's a lot of pressure right now. Written by Tom Standage, 2009, 280 pages long, is called An Edible History of Humanity. I hope you remember that name because I will not be saying it again. <laughs> I really wish he had okay. mispronounced a different word. That would have been amazing. <laughs> He won't be saying it again because he's going to keep saying edible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yes. Edible. Edible History of Humanity. Tom Standage, 2009. Um, Nick, Ian and I brought similar-ish books this week, but mine starts a real long time ago. Ian, how, how far back does your book go? Oh, man. Like, if you had to um, guess. If you had to guess. Like ancient history like hunter-gatherers 9000 bc uh, like the dawn of man fine. basically. oh my god Ian is so cocky okay that's when mine also starts uh i thought joe was about to be like uh salt came from jupiter mine goes back to the <laughs> beginning of the universe no um no mine also goes bang. back to hunters and gatherers um so so ian that um nice job 
Yeah, that one really imploded on you there, Joe. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. That sucked. I should have. Uh... All right, next point that Ian can fucking decimate. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My book starts with Hunters and Gatherers. It comes through modern day, much like Ian's book. Um, it's not so focused on like the minutiae, though. It's not so focused on. <laughs> oh, crap. Did you guys read the same book? <laughs> not twice in the same trilogy. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, where Ian's book, though, talks about like knives and pots and pans and it sounds like mostly t- teeth and jaws. Uh, my book talks about about the history of humanity as told through food and specifically how food has shaped not just who we are, like now our teeth don't close how they used to, but like who we are as a species, how food has shaped the species of humanity. So I've I've broken this book down into like eight different bullet points. And it's, it's kind of the story that this book tells. Well, well eight different cool. bullet points, but I'm going to just rattle them off. Can you condense those into like two? I <laughs> just, you don't have to change. You don't have to change the amount of information. Just, just so it sounds like less. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Guys, I've condensed these into three easily digestible. Oh, <laughs> sweet. But I'm not going to tell you where they start. You always have to pick an odd number. Mm-hmm. That's right. the rule. All right. If there's a list, it has to be an odd number, unless you're David Letterman. Three bullet points coming your way. Okay, this is how it goes. First, there were hunters and gatherers. That's where this book starts. Then, they began to supplement their food with some domestic grains. Like they found wheat and uh, rice. Now, this next point's going to be really long. <laughs> hey, Joe. I just uh-huh. want to tell you that gold star is teetering. No, no, no. Okay, let me move on to my second point. <laughs> okay, so yeah, pretty much this starts with hunters gatherers and talks about how hunter and gatherer societies turned into the mess we're in now. <laughs> the paradise we live in. <laughs> so it goes from there were hunter gatherers and then they began to like supplement their food with domestic grains like these just grasses that they found where they're like, oh, this grass is good to eat, and I think if we planted these seeds, we could just grow this grass. And then they became farmers, like at these bands of hunter-gatherers became farmers. Hmm. Um, over time, like those farmers allowed people to amass wealth. Um, they, like cities started to form, um, like currency hey, started Joe. to form, credit. Yep, I'm on the first bullet point yet. Is that the question? <laughs> <laughs> it was not. Hey, readers, listeners, I hope you're following along and charting mm-hmm. these bullet points as I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, readers, if you want to download the graphic organizer, you can go to you don't know lit podcast.com, <laughs> click on show notes. This is episode. <laughs> go to our Microsoft Teams. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joseph, does your book get into how, like, the f- what, 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 I don't know if this is accurate, but have you ever heard, you know, that like the, the first war was over salt? You ever oh, heard that? Oh, okay. Like spices, right? The spice yes. wars. Oh, that, that's uh, Dune. Fear is the mind killer. <laughs> Never mind. It's Dune. Yeah, Nick, that's kind of exactly what my book is about. It's like, hey, Napoleon was a really good general. Let me tell mm-hmm. you how he basically used food to win all of his battles. <laughs> Let me tell you about his favorite chili recipe. <laughs> Dude loved cardamom, and so that's why they took over India. First, he boiled lettuce. Um, so that so that's what it does. Th- that really is what it does. And like you you say as a joke, like he loved cardamom, and that's why he took over India. But like you just described, like the 
like the spice trade <laughs> and like the colonial <laughs> colonialism. It's like, hey, Ooh. these these Europeans really loved these spices for their foods and they were exotic. Yeah. So they built a bunch of ships and they went to so look for them. So there was genocide. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. And does it, um, is it pretty surface level on like these different accounts? It, it kind of must be, right? It, it's it's about it's about three hundred pages long, two hundred eighty pages long. So it's not like the shortest book in the world, but for a book called like the Edible History of Humanity, yeah, it's condensed. It's <laughs> okay, I I think I've discovered. A f- now, does this three hundred page book uh, really get get all of it in there? Or? <laughs> I think I've discovered a flaw. I'm mm-hmm. I'm concerned. A flan? Did you say a flaw? A flan. I think I've discovered a flaw. It's been sitting in front of me this whole time. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's so exciting. Joe, did you make this flan for me? And if so, is it poisoned? Also, is there a concern that maybe somebody would take this book and say to themselves, ooh, edible, you say, and then just get out mm-hmm. some ketchup and a fork and knife and oh, tuck in? Yep. Shit. Ian, really good concern. Get out concern. their boiled lettuce and just go <laughs> for it. Really good concern. I read this book digitally so my version was not edible but it's possible that like there's cake versions of this can out you there. imagine this book printed on non or Joe, something what bullet point are we on i don't I, i've abandoned <laughs> the bullet points There's a ton of stuff in this book, and it's built very much in the same way that Ian's book is, where it's like, hey, here's an essay about topic, right? But instead of here's an essay about top pots and pans, it's like, here's an essay about the spice trade. And let me tell you, like, how food, like, how the spice trade shaped the world, drank the world, led to colonialism, led to genocide, etc. And is that kind of where it, it peaks, Joe? Like, is that kind of where it it ends or does it kind of come to like modern day or how does that work? No, it, it comes to, nope. It 21st century, um, pushing new boundaries, talking about like chemical fertilizers, talking about GMOs. Like, Oh, interesting. Yeah. It comes to, it comes right up to, well, 2009. (laughs) Does it talk about like their predictions, you know, like taking history and applying that to like our current situation, what it's going to look like? Okay, that's a good question. It talks about, he, he doesn't make predictions. He asks a couple of questions. And one thing that becomes very clear throughout this book is he makes this argument that, <laughs> hey, food, like food has shaped people, right? Like like the, like the, uh, the availability of food, the types of food that we eat, like food has shaped people. People, yeah. however, have also shaped food to meet their needs like to meet their demands and this isn't crazy one of the things he says he says well look that's still happening right and we're still like you know pushing the boundaries with genetically modified organisms right like we're still pushing the boundaries with chemical fertilizers and he does lead to he does ask the question towards the end of this book of like you know it's it's the black mirror question where it's like but have we gone too far like is this the tipping point where we're not supposed to and his answer is kind of no, I think it's probably fine. <laughs> so, so the question is: okay. Has has food doomed humanity? And the- mm, no, it turns out food is good for humanity. Let me say that here and now, food is good for humanity. It's good. I'm glad because wow. I, I like eating. Yeah, except still. for all those spice wars. <laughs> except for the spice wars. Well, okay. Except for the genocide. Okay, so that actually brings me to some of the 
like my, my favorite part of this book is like, I, I kind of think of them as like fun facts, like these little insights that he has, these little like break off things that you maybe haven't heard before, but are like pretty cool. So you like, you're talking about like, is food good for humanity? Um, one of the early points that he makes is he's talking about hunter gatherers and he's talking about like the work life balance of hunters gatherers. And they figured like to be a successful hunter gatherer, like if you want to live in that society, you probably have something like 15 to 20 hours of work every week. And when they look at like these skeletons of hunters gatherers, they're like kind of like big and strong and pretty healthy. And they ate a really varied diet. Um, one of the things that's interesting is when these hunter gatherers switch to farming, their health overall, like the health of any individual overall decreased. Like they got, they began to rely on a single source of food. They began to get um, like more malnourished. So for the, in, and by the way, it's hard to farm, right? <laughs> like, like farming is a ton of yeah. work. Like they went from working 15 hours a week to working like 60 hours a week. But while it was really like not bad for the individual, but worse for the individual, it was really good for individuals, like for like society, maybe is the better way to say it. Like, so while it was bad for the individual, it was good for society. The economy, you mean? <laughs> well, I mean, eventually the economy, but I mean, it also like allowed you to, you know, as soon as you're farming, well, now you can hold food over the winter you can store it you don't have to right. be transient right like you you can it's progress it's right? progress it's a step in the right direction in some way it's just <laughs> it just happened to be handled and maybe not the best execution of that but that's pretty cool more um more like yeah economic political ramifications where i feel like uh ian your, yours is maybe a little bit more romantic about it well, and Nick, you started right away by saying like the macro versus the micro. And I think you've actually kind of hit it. Like my book talks about macro trends. Can I tell you a quick story about Christopher Columbus? Yeah, we the would best, love it. The best okay. kind of story is one about that guy. Are we talking about the film director who was behind um, the first Harry Potter movie? We're talking about the sailor who's behind genocide oh, gotcha. and slavery. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. So you guys know the story of Christopher Columbus, or there's or a story of Christopher Columbus, I'm sure. When he so when he was sailing west in order to discover the, the blah, ocean blah blah blue. blah blah blah, right? One the ocean blues, 1492, absolutely. So in 1492, when he was sailing west, one of the things he wanted to come back with was spice, right? Like spice was this um, tremendous source of wealth. It, it was... I'm sorry. sorry. You keep is, saying is spice. You keep saying spice. And I, Are you I, conjuring a Dune quote? No, I just keep thinking. I just keep thinking of Dune. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's Ian, um, just impossible to not. Could you say of. spices? Spices. The, absolutely. Just say the spicy spice. The spicy spice. <laughs> my, my favorite spice girl. Christopher Columbus is looking for <laughs> spices. He discovers the new world, the spiciest of spices. He discovers the new Thank world. You. And he finds all sorts of stuff that turns out to be really good for his colonial masters and really bad for the indigenous people. Um, for example, he finds like the Caribbean islands, which are great for sugar cane and people love sugar and by the way there's a bunch of people there who will just do what you tell them to if you point guns at them right and and threaten them with violence however 
he wanted to come back with spices. So he he would go on these foraging expeditions to find these spices, but he didn't actually know what they looked like unprocessed. Like his crew always bought them <laughs> once they were processed. What's a banana? $8? Yeah. <laughs> so he kept bringing these things back to Europe and making claims about what they were. So like he would bring a stick uh, back to his, his patrons and he would say, look, I've brought back cinnamon in its raw form. And they would look at it and they would say, it doesn't smell like cinnamon. And he's, and he would say, well, it's been a long boat ride (laughs) and they would like break it up and smash it. And they would say, it doesn't taste like cinnamon. He says, yeah, I think it's just gone bad. (laughs) Is that it? That's the whole story, but isn't that ridiculous? Secretly, Joe is trying to uncancel Christopher with that one, but (laughs) I love Joe's stories. I feel like I, I'm just kind of realizing that I always ask Joe if that's it, because I always think they're like going to like tie back into like the, like the story nope, somehow. No, it's, it's always just, here's this fun little thing that, but it was, yeah, just laugh. this weird little thing that made Joe laugh. Yeah. Can I give you a couple more weird little things that made me laugh or, or brought me delight? Do you guys know about Charles the second and pineapples? Ian, I feel like this is something <laughs> oh, that he's not going to wrap it up. <laughs> Do you guys know about the pine needles incident of 1972? <laughs> That's the tone of someone launching into to half hour number four. Uh, no, we do. Not, we super don't know, Joe. Nobody knows. Joe, Nobody I know about knows what Charles you just said. Second, and I know about pineapples separately, but not together. <laughs> okay. So there's this famous painting of, it's called Charles the Second presented with a pineapple. <laughs> And it's Charles II standing in front of like some beautiful chateau and there's a the oh, royal I gardener. I do think I know what you're talking about, Joe. Yeah. yeah there's like a this gardener is ringing a bell. on his knee handing him a pineapple. And it's like, what is going on? Apparently, when all like these colonial powers of Europe were fighting with each other about, you know, who should be in charge of what and all, like flexing on each other with their, um, you know, tremendous muscles, exploitation. Their spicy um, spice. <laughs> Charles II, at a dinner that he threw for all of his friends, had a pineapple served at it. And it was like a huge, huge what a Chad. deal. That's a, uh, that's claimed, a real Chad move right there. He, he, it was, but like when he served the pineapple, everyone's like, <laughs> everyone's like, oh my God, is that a pineapple? And he's like, absolutely. I have such sway over my colonies. I'm such a magnanimous leader over my colonies. Like, we get things like pineapples here. And to commemorate the event, like they p- painted this picture of Charles II being presented with a pineapple. And it's kind of great. Like there's a couple little King Charles spaniels in the picture. There's a guy on his knee. It's, 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 it's great. This book sounds like a real downer, Joe. Well, it, it, it's, this book is, this book is a bunch of facts and it's, it's pretty, I, it's, it's a relatively dry book, I think. It's complicated by the fact that the audiobook version of it is the, I mean, no shade to the narrator here, but like it was unlistenable. Um, it made me, it made me discover the 1.5 X speed this on my is inaudible. player, like on my audiobook. Whoa, play. this yeah. is, oh, it was like, this is audible. This is audible is what it sounded like when this is audible. That was good. That Ooh, was, that was, that was good. Great good that was good that felt good this is audible i got it good job congratulations take the rest of my gold stars wow 
Well, Nick, you, every, every episode, the person with the most gold stars gets to choose which book wins. And here you are. You have two. I still have zero. And Joe has foolishly squandered all of his. I am so. your gold star king. I feel like I kind of summed it up already at, with my aside, but I, I do feel like Ian, you know, you got the hands-on, you know, type of more intimate, I'd say, side yes. of food, right? That's at least yeah. from your telling of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he's like uh, in bed oh. with food. It's like he's got like a sexy version of food. Obviously some, yeah, some sex. So, mm-hmm. um, Joseph, yours sounds like a, like a librarian's version of mm, that. Heavily <laughs> footnoted. Heavily footnoted. <laughs> In 1943, <laughs> kind of like that. Um, so, so Joe, you lose. Uh, um, I think they both kind of. It sounds like they accomplished very different aspects of history. So, wow, it's an accidental great pairing of books. It's always nice when that happens. Nice. Every <laughs> once in a while, we do it. <laughs> we crush it. It sounds like these. Yeah, you could kind of get a, a good sense of food history. Um, two very different points of view uh anyway they both sounded great yeah lidheads if you want to cash in your gold stars you know where to do it it's right over at you don't know lit podcast.com the best things you can do over there are suggest a theme suggest a book um we, we're getting pretty good at themes guys but we do like it when you suggest them we like it when we you suggest themes you. we like it when you suggest books because it makes us read weird stuff that we wouldn't have otherwise um, if you don't care about what we talk about, and if you're just here for the shucking and the jiving, you can just go and ahead and jiving. rate us on any social, follow us on social media. We are everywhere. Don't forget to follow our recipe blog on Pinterest. Um, but yeah, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and leave a five-star review on the podcast player of your choice. Congratulations, Ian. And congratulations, Ian. <laughs> There's the tearing. Okay, sorry. First, a quick fun story about omelets, and then my my quote. Cool. Um, as you guys know, as you guys know, I was homeschooled, and part of our homeschooling was spelling. So we practiced our spelling. And um, one of my sisters uh, had to spell the word amulet, A M U L E T, and so she did. But then she had never heard it pronounced, and so she referred to it was like use it in a sentence now. She's so she was like, the chic turned around and took the omelet off his arm. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Litheads, by the way, don't make fun of people for mispronouncing things. It just means that they learned the word by reading it. Oh, yeah. We should or have a, a talk sometime about all the, the books, we, all, the, all the words we, we ever mispronounce because we only read them. Okay, so this mm-hmm. is my quote about omelet. The food we cook is not only an assemblage of ingredients, It is the product of technologies, past and present. One sunny day, I decide to make a quick omelet for my lunch. A puffy golden oval in the French rolled tradition. On paper, it consists of nothing but eggs, free range, sweet cold butter, and sea salt. But the true components are many more. There is the fridge from which I fetch the butter and the old battered aluminium frying pan in which I cook it, whose surface is seasoned from ten years of use. There's the balloon whisk that beats the eggs, though a fork would do just as well. 
the countless cookery writers whose words warned me not to overbeat, the gas burner that enables me to get the pan hot enough, but not so hot the eggs burn or get rubbery, the spatula that rolls the golden brown omelette onto the plate. Thanks to all these technologies, the omelette has, on this occasion, for this particular solitary lunch, worked. I am pleased the entire mood of an afternoon can be spoiled or improved by lunch. There is still one more component to this meal, however. The impulse to make it in the first place. Kitchens only come alive when you cook in them. What really drives technology is the desire to use it. This omelette lunch would never have been made without my mother, who first taught me that the kitchen was a place where good things happened.